You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Up on the screens is a very important message. It says this, Ilya horius men kair uvai nai i care luminan yan na me atanya. Now I can't imagine anybody would know what I just said. We are looking at the Tower of Babel after all. But there may be a few of you who may know this language. And I've got three hints this morning. If you can get it, you get a prize. Number one, it's an ancient language. Number two, your ears may have perked up hearing this. And number three, if you know this, you're a massive, massive nerd. Does anybody know this language? Oh my gosh. What is wrong with you people? Really? What is it? Elvish. Yes. I can't believe some people knew that. Yes. It is the ancient Elvish language of Sindarin, which of course is the language of the pointy-eared elves from the Lord of the Rings. Yes, they do have their own language. I can't believe the whole room couldn't get that. Now, I mention all of that this morning because we are looking at the Tower of Babel. And Babel on the surface has to do with languages and the confusion of languages. But as we'll see, it's much more than that. Babel has to do with the pride of man, the rugged individualism of humankind, the idolatry of humans. And Babel has to do with the pushback of God, pushback that often results in broken towers, confusion, loss. But as we'll see this morning, because of the great mercy and compassion of our God, those broken towers can lead us to grace. They can lead us to another day. They can lead us to a life where we're lifted up in God. My main idea really this morning is all of that. And it's from the book of James in the New Testament. And it's this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, my outline is going to be also up on the screen, and it's the most creative outline I've ever come up with, and it's this. Number one, let's build a utopia, Genesis 11, 1 through 4. Number two, nope, of course, God's answer, Genesis 11, 5 through 9. And then finally, we'll see a resolution in Genesis 11, all the way through Revelation chapter 22, verse 21, which is the end of the Bible. I certainly won't be reading all of that. And the first point, we'll see the idolatry and the pride of man. And the second point, we'll see the pushback of God and, of course, the mercy of God in that pushback. And in the third, we'll see resolution or grace. Now, if you're joining us for the first time or you're just kind of been popping in and out over the last few weeks, we have been studying the book of Genesis as a church. And in the book of Genesis, God says, I've created human beings to reflect my glory, to reflect my goodness, my power, my kindness, 
my artistry, my complexity. And if they reflect me, they'll represent me in the world and life will thrive. He says, when we do that, we'll also find real glory. We'll find real significance. We'll find actual real significance in this world because we've realized we're loved by him. We're protected by him. We're upheld by his righteous right hand and reflecting him and in representing him in the world, being made in his image, that will give us a value and a significance more than anything else could. In Genesis also, God says as well, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. He says initially, I want you to spread out. The idea there is that God is saying there's differences within your group that I want developed. Developed into diverse cultures. He's saying the world will not be what I want it to be. Human beings will not be what I want them to be unless they spread out. There's no one race. There's no one language. There's no one cultural group that's going to be able to bring out all the varieties that I've put into human nature. Now, pretty soon we know over the last few weeks that things start to go wrong. First, the serpent, then the fall, then a flood, a reboot of the system, so to speak. But again, God shows up again and again, and he repeats himself, go and fill the earth and spread out, which really leads us this morning to our first point, let's build a utopia. Said another way, humans are going to human, which means they're going to push back on this. Verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. This is basically called in linguistics the proto-world theory or the mother tongue theory of language. They're all speaking the same language. They're all using the same cliches. It's a bit of a a, a little kind of a compound, verse 2. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, this is bad news. Shinar is the land that's going to become Babylon. Not the Babylon B, but the <laughs> Babylon. The Old Testament bad guys. These are the enemies of God. And in the New Testament, we're going to see that the name of Babylon will actually become the description of a unified humanity against the purposes of God. This is essentially the brotherhood, the sisterhood of man. They're coming out to the song, Imagine, by John Lennon, verse 3. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. The idea here is they have brick, they have cement, they have technology, and they're going to work together to create something really special. Verse 4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city in a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This summer, a few of us checked out the city of Dubai. Dubai is in the United Arab Emirates, which is in the Middle East. The city's pretty massive. It's essentially like someone just plopped down a massive city, a state-of-the-art city, I should say, in the desert and quickly build it up over the last 20 years. But in the heart of the city is what you'll see up on the screen. It's a building called the Burj Khalifa. And uh, on that trip, we went up 
on top, and it's an amazing view of the city. It's almost like you're in an airplane that's stopped mid-sky, and you can see just this beautiful skyline of the city. The, the city's pretty wild. It's, it's got seven-star hotels. They have the world's largest man-made islands. Some of the police cars are Bugattis and Lamborghinis. They have every possible franchise restaurant from every nation on the face of the, of the, of the map, from, from every country, everywhere. It's, it's a pretty wild place if you've ever been there. And it's a bit like a utopia in the desert, like the perfect place. But on the last night I was there, I was sitting in Daquan's hotel room, and I was reading up a little bit on Dubai. And I stumbled on something that sent me down a dark rabbit hole, so to speak. Uh, they were YouTube videos that were basically looking at the dark side of Dubai. The videos talked about how 85% of the people living in Dubai are not from Dubai. They're foreign workers. They come there to work, and then they send the money back home. But this is where it got bad. The videos showed that for so many of the workers there, the living conditions are really, really terrible. Like employers at times seizing passports, suicide rates that were higher than normal. And as I was sitting there in Daquan's room, I realized this is no utopia. Uh, it may look like paradise on the outside, but there's some serious issues behind how this thing was built. Like many places, there is a dark underbelly to all the glitz, to all the glamour of the city. And here in Babel, we see an amazing tower and an amazing city that's being built with great new technology, with great unity on the surface. But there's a dark side to Babel. There are some serious issues in how this thing was being built. There's a dark underbelly to all the glitz and the glamour of the city. And in Babel, that dark underbelly, those issues could be best summarized in two words. Human pride. Human pride. At the time, they were supposed to go to be fruitful and multiply, to spread out throughout the world. It was pretty easy. Be godly, have sex, and travel. A lot of people would like to do that. But they're sick of being nomads. Their trust in the wisdom of God breaks down. They become too big for God, too wise for God, too smart for God. And the result is that they turn on him. And what happens next? Well, as always, pride becomes idolatry. Pride becomes idolatry. Idolatry essentially is taking a good thing and making it a God thing. It's taking a good thing and making it a God thing. It's absolutizing something, whether that's marriage or relationship or success or work or family, and making that thing God. It's an attempt to find in something or someone what you could have in God. It leads to idolatry because pride pushes God out. And when we push him out, there is side effects. As the ancient preachers of old used to say, there's a giant God-sized hole in our hearts. And in Babel, they have pushed God out. They've lost their way. 
And now instead of reflecting and representing God and finding their glory, their significance in being loved by God and known by God, the side effects are that they are starved for significance. They are starved for identity. They are starved for security. And so notice verse 4. They want a city. They want a tower because they want security. They don't want to be dispersed, verse 4. And they want a city and they want a tower because they want an identity, a name for ourselves. That is glory, significance, to be known and to matter. Now, these desires are not wrong if we think about it. It's good to have security. It's good to have significance. We need it. What's wrong is where they're looking for it. They had those things in God. We have those things in God. But notice in Babel, they've pushed him away. And so maybe even unknown to them, they're now looking for it elsewhere. And if we're honest, we do the same thing today. We want a city, a place to feel safe, a group to feel like we really belong. It's why family is so important or being accepted by the right groups or having the right people like you. We want to belong to a city. We want something that guarantees our security and we want a tower. We want our lives to matter. We want to be connected to greatness. It's why some people stress out about their careers and they say, am I actually doing anything that affects anybody? It's why when we meet someone important, we tweet out immediately, I had dinner with Katy Perry, hashtag humbled. The irony there is you're not actually humbled. You're exalted. We don't tweet out messages that actually humble us. We don't say I'm 14 pounds overweight, hashtag humbled. Why? Because we're trying to build a tower. We want to be connected to greatness. We want our lives to matter to be significant. Now, none of those desires are wrong. Security, significance, what's wrong is where we look to it, where we look to find it, where we try to derive it from, whether it's a job or a person or a status or a tower. None of those things will ever deliver what they promise to give. The reason is because they can't. They weren't designed to deliver. Only God himself is, and he offers himself freely to us this morning. If we would grasp him by faith, if we would trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, if we would look to him with eyes of faith and receive all that he is, all that he promises to be for us. One of the biggest discoveries that I've made in my life was the realization that all of my life, I've been reaching out to God even when I didn't know it. In moments where I've experienced great personal significance, whether it's winning a weightlifting competition in New York or meeting someone famous here in Washington, D.C. or getting recognized at my school in North Carolina, I tasted something. And it made me long and thirst for something more in those moments. In moments where I've experienced deep beauty just the other night seeing a beautiful sunset and the orange and red colors in the sky, 
I tasted something. It made me long for and thirst for something more in those moments. In moments where I've experienced deep security and deep love, deep adventure and worship, I tasted something. And it made me long and thirst for something more. It's like those experiences were calling out to me. C.S. Lewis says it best. He says this, The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. This morning, it will change your life if you realize that every tower you build in your life, everything you think is going to deliver is just an attempt to find God, to regain something that God has already freely given in himself to you. Let him draw near to you this morning. Listen to him. Don't resist him. All you need is need. In God is where we find ultimate security. In reflecting him and representing him and being known by him and loved by him is where we find our ultimate significance. You were made to know glory, to have significance, and that flows from knowing God in Jesus Christ. The passage continues, and we see our second point really this morning, which is nope. Genesis 5 through 9. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So there's some humor in this. This is a little bit of an anthropomorphism. The Lord comes down, and there's supposed to be this large tower. It's supposed to be in heaven, but it's nowhere close. It's nothing. Humanity's great accomplishment. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So God looks down and he sees a unified humanity. They're one. They've just built an amazing city. And by human standards, a great tower. But this isn't the unity that God's after. This is the first Babylon a unified humanity apart from God. Now, they're certainly united, but it's not around the image of God. It's not around representing and reflecting God. It's being united around something else, their own pride, their own progress, their own new definitions of what is good and what is bad. And God looks at it, and he says, if this continues, it's going to be bad. It'll look like a utopia, but it will be the worst dystopia of all. It'll have a very dark underbelly. It'll all be in the name of unity, of togetherness, of progress, of mutual accomplishment, but it will give way to the worst oppression of all. So in grace, verse 7, he acts. Come, let us go down 
and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. In other words, he gets them back on track. He's been saying, fill the earth, spread out. There's differences in your group that I want further developed, developed into diverse cultures. There's no one race, there's no one language, there's no one particular group that's going to be able to bring out all the unique varieties that I put in human nature. And in a real way, the result is that God builds into the world a beautiful checks and balances system here, doesn't he? A system where the pride of different people groups restrains the pride of other people's people groups. Thousands and thousands of language, languages, I should say, and thousands and thousands of cultures that will help limit a worldwide Babylon. Verse 9. Therefore, its name was called Babel. In Hebrew, that sounds similar to Balal, which means to confuse. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them from, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So essentially, the Lord says, nope. <laughs> it's a pushback. But it's also his mercy. Notice, it's also his grace. He sees what the end result would be here. And he doesn't leave them enslaved to their own towers. He wants them to experience the joy of knowing him and trusting him. Pastor Mark Carter out of Houston, Texas, points out something interesting here. He's, he calls this a tower of disappointment. A tower of disappointment. Notice how God doesn't smash the tower here. There's no fire or flood. It just says they left off building the city. God just leaves the tower standing there. It would have likely been an eyesore, but it would have been a message. At one point, they put their hopes of identity, of security in this tower. It was an idol. And now it was seen for what it really was, a disappointment. Something they tried to make them give what only God could give them. It's a reminder that idols, good things that we make God things, things we try to find our ultimate security and identity in, always turn out to be disappointments. Why? Because they're not made to deliver. They aren't designed to deliver. Only the God in heaven delivers. Tim Keller, another pastor, out in, out in New York says, we can do one of four things when we face the inevitable disappointment of an idol, when our towers fail us. He says, we can blame the idol itself. It looks like the, the, reason I'm, the only reason I'm unhappy in this job is because my job is not giving me what I want. This job is terrible. I need a new job. And the cycle begins, new job after new job after new job, never being satisfied. We can blame ourselves. We can say, I'm, I'm not happy. The reason I was never happy in the relationship was because of me. Why don't I feel happy in this? And again, the cycle of beatdowns begins, never satisfying, never ending. We can also blame the world. This world is so messed up. I kind of got what I wanted, but all of them spoil it for me. And the cycle starts, never satisfied, never enough. Well, then Keller says we can do a fourth thing. When our towers fail us, 
when they don't deliver, we can realize that we were created for another world. C.S. Lewis again famously says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We all have broken towers. Some of us are still trying to build those towers. But our hearts will not find rest until we find rest in God. Security, comfort, beauty, contentment, significance, it all flows from Him. It all comes from knowing Him, trusting in Him, being known by Him, not from stuff, not from towers, but from Him and Him alone. Which really leads us to our final point this morning, resolution. Over time, people spread out, they're fruitful, and they multiply, and languages change, and cultures are birthed. But then the narrative of Genesis shifts. It laser focuses in on one person. His name is Abraham. And he's old, he's frail, but he's humble. And God calls Abraham, and he tells him that he's going to make him a great nation. He's going to make his name great, and all the people of the earth would be blessed through him. And God says to Abraham, all these people are, are scattered in the earth, but one day through you, I'm going to do something great. Now, eventually Abraham dies off, but the rest of the Bible is about tracing Abraham's line. And through Abraham's line comes none other than Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham. God looks at Jesus and he says, all the scattered peoples of the earth through you, I'm going to do something amazing. And the message of the Bible is that when we believe in Jesus Christ, when we know that God loves us and accepts us because of what he did on a cross, we get a new name. We realize that the only person that ever counts, that has ever counted, loves us. And that we're the citizen of the only city that ever really has mattered. We get an identity and a security that can never be taken away. He's the God who comes down to bring us to himself. Every other religion is about your pathway up to God, earn your way to him. But in Jesus Christ, it's about God coming to us. It's about the God of humility, the God of grace, who gives himself up to die for us on a cross, to live the life we never could have lived, to die the death we deserve to die, and he welcomes us to know him, to trust in him, to build our lives on him. Jesus is God's great answer to Babel. He's the one who unites every tribe and nation and tongue around the thing that matters most. And in the end, one day, it is a perfect utopia because we'll have a perfect king. And the book of Revelation puts it like this. I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Worship, unity around the only thing that really matters. In the Lord of the Rings, the 
basic plot line is that there is a villain named Sauron. And Sauron creates the one ruling ring, essentially to rule over the people of Middle-earth. And when he creates the ring, he essentially puts a big part of himself and his power into this ring. So if he's wearing the ring, it makes him really strong. He can just dominate. And if he loses the ring, because so much of himself and so much of his power is in that ring, he grows very weak. And if the ring is destroyed, he's destroyed. That's basically the plot line of The Lord of the Rings. And in the end of, end of these movies, the ring gets thrown into some lava, and Sauron blows up. Now, J.R.R. Tolkien, the creator of The Lord of the Rings, was once asked about all of this. And he says something that's really interesting. He says it's all a picture of human idolatry, what we've been talking about. He says the ring of Sauron is only one of the various mythical treatments of the placing of one's life or power in some external object, some thing in this world. While you wear it on your hand, your power is enhanced, but now your life and power are exposed to capture or destruction with disastrous results to yourself. In other words, Tolkien says that idolatry is like when we put a big part of ourselves, we put our power, our hopes in something else, in some external object. It can be anything, a person, money, a status, a tower. If we get our idol, we, we may have a temporarily enhanced power. But the problem is we've just put our hopes and dreams and ourselves into something that is vulnerable, that will one day fade away. And when it does, because so much of you and your power, your hopes and dreams are wrapped up in it, when it gets thrown in lava, the danger is that you'll blow up. Babel teaches us that pride and idolatry are a dangerous thing. It makes you vulnerable in all the wrong ways. But this morning, you can know God through Jesus Christ. He can give you an identity that, that both makes you humble. You see how sinful you are. It makes you confident at the same time. You see how greatly loved you are. And in the gospel, he can give you a security that moth and rust cannot destroy. Trust him this morning. Look to the God who can meet all of your needs richly in Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.